Welcome to the One God Report podcast. I'm happy to have Mr. William Gilmore as our guest. I've gotten to know William a little bit through some of his Facebook posts, had a little bit of correspondence with him here and there. I've tried to get him to write his thoughts down in a blog so that they kind of don't disappear into the Facebook netherworld. Let me start, William, by quoting a couple of your posts. Just recently, I pulled a couple off. Here, William says, I prefer to believe in a God that actually exists rather than in an idol that was invented by the Romans hundreds of years after Christianity began. I can agree with that. Or how about this? One cannot believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that the Son of God became Jesus at the same time. You either believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that the Son of God existed before the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. Or how about this one? The man of lawlessness has destroyed the knowledge of the one God. The man of lawlessness has destroyed the knowledge of the man, Christ Jesus. The man of lawlessness has destroyed the knowledge of the fact that the glorified man, Christ Jesus, has replaced the elect angels and is now the one mediator between God and men. Okay, so it's posts like this that kind of got me interested in striking up a relationship with William, and also that he has an interesting past and a big family. So William, if I can, can I ask you to start out here by just giving us a little bit about your background, where you're from, where did you go to school, your family, and what you do now? And then also, how did you come to understand that God is one? and that Jesus is his human Messiah? Uh, Yeah, that's a really big question. I was born in 1973, and I was raised by parents who were involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, doing medical missions around the world. So in terms of the church, I was raised in the PCUSA, so in a mainline Protestant denomination. But a lot of the influences in my life were coming more from evangelicalism and from the Billy Graham movement and from another man that was very influential with my parents group was Francis Schaeffer. And so I've always, I guess, since my youth had this sort of tension between the fact that I was involved in a church that was, looking back on it, I would say liberal, but that my parents were more conservative than that and that my parents were more evangelical than they were actually committed to what their church was doing. So going back then again to the, the PC USA, that's, what I would that's want, the Presbyterian Church of that, America. Yeah. Yeah, that's that? the, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America. They're very resistant, I think, to reform. They highlight the fact that they are united and that they are not dividing. You know, I, I now see that as a weakness where they're they're putting that as their strength, right? That they were the original and sort of that they have actually uh, resisted reform. I think that evangelicalism attempts in many ways to reform mainline Protestantism. And so the thing I would want to highlight, the thing that's become very important to me in retrospect, especially having to do with the one God and with the man Christ Jesus, is the fact that in this Presbyterian church, I was taught two creeds growing up. I was taught what's called the Apostles' Creed. I prefer now to say that it's not the Apostles' Creed. That's the church or Christians trying to give that more authority than it really has. It's not actually from the apostles. And then the other creed was the Nicene Creed. 
But I would also quickly point out that the Nicene Creed that we said in that church did not include the anathemas at the end. And I didn't know about those anathemas until much later on in life. So anyway, my youth was the Presbyterian church and then a lot of evangelical assumptions and also an evangelical sort of Christian school that I went to that was uh, rather broad, I would say, in their definition of Christianity. But from a very early age, especially after being a missionary kid and, and going around the world, when we came back to the United States, I very quickly rebelled against my parents. And so from about fifth or sixth grade, so pretty early on, I started saying, hey, my parents are Christians and I am not. And I started being sort of like problematic in, in Sunday school also. And I started pursuing things that were the opposite of my Christian upbringing. So I had a very rocky relationship with my parents from about sixth grade through the time that I left their house when I was like 17 or 18. And I was very much of the conviction that I am not a Christian, uh, that I was raised in a Christian home, but that's what my parents are, but I'm certainly not that. That was at least my external, what I would say. But throughout that whole time, I also, in retrospect, would say I always believed in God <laughs> and I always believed in Jesus. So I, I always believed in both of them, even at the same time I was saying I'm not a Christian. So I don't know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in retrospect, but I would date girls in my early 20s and I would say, well, we can never have a serious relationship because when I'm in my mid-30s, I'm going to be a very serious Christian. <laughs> mm. So uh, even while I was rejecting it, I kind of knew, I guess, the future concerning it. So that's my original background. But the thing that my parents sort of pushed me into to get me out of my rebellion was they wanted me to be involved in anything. And the thing that I got into was snowboarding. I was involved in snowboarding really from the age of 14 until about the age of 27, until 1999 or so. Or actually, it was in 2000 when I finally resigned from my job at Solomon. Who's Solomon? Yeah, I was working for Solomon. Yeah, what uh, I is was, it? Uh, it's a ski and snowboarding company that's in okay. Annecy, France. Okay. And I was working for them originally in Newburyport, Massachusetts. So that was outside of Boston. But then they got bought by Adidas and they moved us to Portland, Oregon. And so I lived in Portland, Oregon in 1999 and 2000. That is when God introduced himself to me. <laughs> It wasn't a super important story for me at the beginning. It's very important to me in retrospect. But when I was working at Solomon, I was like on top of the world from my point of view. I had way more success than I ever would have had, largely just because of people that I knew. It was amazing. You know, I was really living the life of a professional snowboarder without having the talents of a professional snowboarder. But I was profoundly unhappy and every time I would speak to my father during that time, my father would tell me, well, you know, well, you can have all the success in the world, but you're not going to be happy until you come to know Christ. You know? <laughs> and Bill, that made me so angry. I would say to him, you know, I want the human answer, dad. I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah, what happened was that Solomon offered me a really good job. And they wanted me to move to France for three years. And it was a job that I really wanted, but we couldn't agree on terms, I would say. And I just decided that I had to leave Annecy and fly back to Portland. This was in the fall of 1999. And I woke up that morning and I drove and I got out to the country kind of like halfway in between 
Annecy, France, and Geneva, Switzerland. And I don't know what I was listening to, but my only memory of it is I had turned on the radio and I was listening to a sermon. And so far as I can recall, that sermon was in English. It was just this, everything's going to be okay because you are a child of God. And whatever that was, but it wasn't an audible voice. It was just something. It hit me like so hard that I had to pull over to the side of the road and I was just bawling. And I mean, I go back to that to this day. It's going to be all right because you're a child of God. You know, and that, that sounds a lot to me like a promise of God. One that he's coming and just making to me with me just seeking the world. And then all of a sudden, I'm having problems in the world. My father's telling me I need to become a Christian. And then really, so far as I'm concerned, my father in heaven stops me on the road. And he obviously didn't promise that it was going to be easy, but he promised that it was going to be okay. And specifically because of this one thing, because I'm a child of God. Mm. And, and I have to say that this idea that Christians are children of God was not a big part of my upbringing. That Jesus is the son of God, you know, that terminology is used a lot, but that Christians are, according to 1 John, Christians are already children of God. <laughs> like, it's, you know, in, there in Romans, Paul says that we're waiting for our adoption as sons at the resurrection. But there in 1 John, it's quite clear, we are already children of God. We are already walking in newness of life. And so my, subjectively speaking, my journey to the one God, to the knowledge of the one God and Christ came on that road. And it came in the form of a promise that everything was going to be okay because I'm a child of God. And I don't know, I was shaken by it. I flew back that morning to Portland uh, during the course of the next 12 months. I resigned from Solomon. And the thing was, is that I was going to do something that was more significant than selling snowboards, (laughs) is what I said at the time. I was, uh, since day one, when I became a Christian, I was much more conservative than the PC USA church in which I was raised. And so uh, I moved to New York to go to school and I wanted to go to film school. I had been producing movies to sell snowboards and now I wanted to produce movies to unite the world, I guess, to help the world communicate and to help the world get on the same page. So I was moving to New York and I wanted to go to what I thought was at the time the the best film school in in the world. So I went to Columbia University in New York. And then on the night before I moved into New York, we're talking about a desolate road in Pennsylvania where I'm out there listening to Christian radio. I was listening to a, a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. All of a sudden, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 just was impressed upon me very strongly. And that is... Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. For this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, my father's life verse. That's the verse that he taught us throughout my upbringing. But then again, I would just highlight, I'm listening to a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. And all of a sudden I knew that it was God that had caused me to quit my job, to give up everything and to move cross country. And then that night when I was off on the side of the road, I pulled over and I got a hotel and I was crying and praying to God. I realized that God had caused me to give up the most important things in my life and to leave everything 
and to move to all places. I was moving into New York City the next morning. And I had not moved to New York at all to become a Christian. But that's what happened. So I had these two very powerful experiences in 1999 and 2000 at very significant times. I moved into New York City the next day and met up with the girl in Brooklyn that I knew that was helping me with everything. And the very next day, she said to me something along the lines of, Will, you're like the last person in your family I can talk to really because the rest of your family are, are Christian. And so from that day on, I was like, well, I'm a Christian now too. So I was in New York from 2000 to 2006. And at that time, I, I started off going to the, the, the PCA. That's the Presbyterian Church in America. And that's a much more conservative. And they left the PCUSA in 1973. And the issue that caused that split, one of the major issues was the PCUSA's support of abortion. I was in the PCA there, but I, I started to go to another church there, which was Times Square Church, that people just told me I had to visit. And I visited it more as like a curiosity, but that was an interdenominational charismatic church led by David Wilkerson. So I was uh, from a very early on in two sort of worlds. And then the the major difference during the time when I was going to both of these churches in New York, and this was about 2003, was that I had gotten married to Kathy, my wife, and we had a child on the way. And instantly the issue for me in between the PCA and the Interdenominational Charismatic Church that we were going to was infant baptism. And that was in relation to the birth of my son. And this was when I really started to realize that the church wasn't unified because the conservative Presbyterian church was cessationist when it came to the gifts of the Spirit, and they supported infant baptism. And very quickly on, I sided with the continuationists at Times Square Church and with the proponents of regular believers' baptism. But I was in school at the time, and in association with my education, I found out about the Anabaptists. And I read a book by a Baptist scholar that was called The Anabaptist Story, and I started to realize that there was this group called the Anabaptists <laughs> that I didn't know anything about. And that's the Amish and the Mennonites. And where they kind of split from the regular Baptists was the practice of nonviolence. And so I became Anabaptist very soon after that. And by 2006, so I graduated from undergraduate school and my intent was to make historical documentary films. But my major focus at that time was on the Christian religion on why are there so many different varieties of the Christian religion and why do they believe so many different things. And obviously, if I'm an Anabaptist, I'm already believing in nonviolence. So I'm believing something which is not a mainstream Christian teaching at all. I was told by people at Redeemer to go to Regent Seminary, which is in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. I was told that that was the best seminary to integrate arts with the Christian religion. So we moved from New York in 2006 all the way across the country, and we went to Canada. And the fall of 2006 is when I became a Unitarian. And I didn't know that I was a Unitarian when I was there, but uh, the issue that first semester when I was at Regent in 2006, the two issues were, the first issue was gender roles. So when I was in New York, the, the conservative Presbyterian church that I was involved with was complementarian. The charismatic church that I was, you know, rebaptized at, I guess if you want to call it a rebaptism, 
was uh, believed in women in ministry. But, you know, I would go to these services where they had women in ministry and I would show them all the traditional texts that we all know about from First and Second Timothy and from other places in the New Testament. How can you justify this? They would just say, God doesn't care and isn't God ministering through her or whatever. And I, I couldn't deny that he was. I still believe it's wrong. You know, I, I believe it's bad order. We shouldn't be doing it. But when I got out there to Regent, Regent College is a mixture of the Episcopalian Church or the Anglican Church, and then the Church of the Brethren. So again, we're talking about a, a co-mixture, sort of of a kind of like high church Anglicanism and evangelicalism. And so this is just like the story of my life. These traditions that are trying to be two things at once. Regent did something very, very interesting from my point of view that I had never encountered before, which was they basically just outright said, we know what the New Testament teaches concerning what Paul teaches concerning women in ministry. We know, and the texts don't matter. We simply, in our culture, we have to be egalitarian on this question. And so it's not about sola scriptura at all. It's completely about Western culture. We're going to be egalitarian. So any argument that you might want to bring to us from the New Testament or from the scriptures, we're not going to listen to, and you may as well not even bother because we've heard this a million times over. I was like, wow, you know, thank you for your honesty. But they were very, very solidly putting culture in the driver's seat and putting the New Testament behind it. So we were required that first semester to take a class called Christian Thought and Culture. And in week two, it was Trinitarianism versus Arianism. And it was, well, this is why we're Trinitarian, and this is why we're not Arian. And immediately, I was able to go back and look at the text. The text that was really at the forefront of my mind is 1 Corinthians 11. The text is 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Mm -hmm. I was looking at that text, and they were teaching egalitarianism in terms of gender roles in the church, and then they were teaching Trinitarianism versus Arianism. And right away, they're like two weeks into that semester, I was like, I'm Arian. I've always been an Arian. I had always, growing up in my Presbyterian church, understood the Nicene Creed to teach Arianism. Okay, so I... Briefly describe, let me interrupt you a second. Just briefly describe what you mean by that when you say Arianism. Well, what is what I mean what by Arianism think? is basically that Jesus is not the one God. So I believe that Arians believe that the Father Almighty is the one living and true God. But when I say Arianism, I'm usually referring to this belief that Jesus is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Arians believe that the one God created an exact replica of himself before the foundations of the world. When I was an Arian, I believed that calling Christ the image of the invisible God, that the image of the invisible God was this pre-existent divine being that God had brought into being before the foundations of the world. And that this second God, this created God, and from day one, I was comfortable with the idea that this second God was the creature. Okay, so I was always comfortable with that. And I knew that the Arians in the beginning had really tried to distance themselves from this idea that this was a creature. And especially in the Nicene Creed, you see them trying to distance themselves by the, by the terminology of begotten, not made of the same substance of the Father. So they're, they're trying to say it's somehow or other this second God 
is begotten, not created. I never saw anything in that argument other than semantics. So my understanding when I was Arian was that God had basically created a son. This son was in fact the being who had even spoken all things into being in the beginning. Okay. That's good. Just it yeah. gives a little understanding that you're looking at some kind of a second being or essence that's emanating yeah. so, pre-existent, pre call it a person, pre-existent self. Sure. No, a unique son of God is the way that I would put it. A unique son of God and his uniqueness is he's the creator. So he's the mediator of creation. I didn't really realize it at the time, but that belief leads automatically to the conviction that it's in fact this uh, mediator who's in the Garden of Eden creating Adam from the dirt. Because if this mediator exists, the father's not going himself. The whole reason this mediator exists is to create. <laughs> I mean, that's his reason for being. That's his uniqueness. That's what makes him different than the rest of the sons of God. So really, it's his role as this creator. The father doesn't get his hands dirty because all the father does is bring the light into existence. And then the father empowers the light to do the rest. So, you know, the Son of God is the mediator through whom God creates all things. And obviously, I'm reading John chapter 1 through that lens. Mm -hmm. like, Colossians. I'm thinking, Colossians <laughs> yes, 1, and Colossians, yeah. all of those texts, you know. Yeah. So I'm thinking Paul is teaching this. I'm thinking that John is teaching this. Yeah, and, and you know all the texts from Philippians, from Colossians, from... Hebrews but for me, chapter 1, yeah. Yeah, but for me, in the beginning, Bill, the important book was 1 Corinthians, Okay, so even there in 1 Corinthians, where it says that God is ahead of Christ, mm -hmm. back then I thought that Christ was a Pauline way of speaking of a pre existing God. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> so even the terminology of Christ means pre existing God. Okay, that's insane now in retrospect, but that's what I thought. And really, it's what a lot of Christians believe. Yeah. Unfortunately. The text is here in 1 Corinthians 8. So for me at the time, I came to the conclusion that I believed, because I thought that 1 Corinthians was earlier than Philippians. The text that I'm reading, in addition to 1 Corinthians 11, from 1 Corinthians 3, 23, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Mm -hmm. And then I'm reading, first, especially this text, which you know that this is a flashpoint text. 1 Corinthians five, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. That's verse seven. Mm -hmm. But again, I'm thinking at the time this is just Arianism. I'm thinking it just flatly says one Lord, and then he says that one Lord is Jesus Christ. And so far as I'm concerned, through whom all things are and through whom we exist is, well, he's the creator. The, <laughs> the, the father creation. is the source. The son is the creator. Okay. But again, I'm not being very careful at all at that time with the terminology of Lord. And I'm not being very careful at that time with the terminology of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So I'm now looking back in retrospect, 14 years later, I'm looking at it and it says one Lord. And in the ESV in front of me, it says comma, Jesus Christ. So I just want to be clear. Jesus Christ is that Lord. Jesus Christ is that Lord. Mm. 
the man. The man, Jesus, Jesus. Christ, is that Lord. I'm going to say that to you now. And not then, okay, back then, the Lord is a pre-existing second God. A God with a little G in my mind always. So I was never binatarian. I was always Arian. So to me, I was always the second God is a creation of the one God. So strictly speaking, I have always been Unitarian, always, since day one. Never Trinitarian, sincerely, never. When I read the membership vows for the Presbyterian Church in America that I was required to take in order to be sprinkled as an adult by them, I'm going to now argue to you that those membership vows are Unitarian, not Trinitarian. And I'm also going to argue to you that the so-called Apostles' Creed is Unitarian, not Trinitarian. And I also actually believe that the Nicene Creed is Unitarian and confused. It's not Trinitarian. (laughs) It's not Trinitarian. I don't think that I was understanding wrong when I understood the Nicene Creed to be an Arian statement of faith. And at the time, I didn't know anything at all about what happened in the fourth century with Constantine. I didn't know anything at all about the Nicene Council. I didn't know that the vast majority of the bishops who went to that council were Arian. And homoousia, that's a term that Constantine got from the Sabellians. And it was a term that they had condemned previously. And I didn't know that my understanding of the church or up until Nicaea or the Council of Constantinople, they're Unitarian. I think it's undeniable. I don't even fight with people about that. Just plain. They, all, <laughs> they believe that in some way, Jesus Christ, the Lord, Jesus Christ, is subordinate to the Father. Now, they'll have yeah. to play with that to get Trinitarianism out of it. They'll say, well, it's an economic subordination and these kinds of things. But it's not simple. If you're going to say Jesus is God in the way that the Trinitarian world now does, it's not simple to explain how Jesus Christ is subordinate. They have to use fancy language. Let me ask you this. You mentioned your wife, Kathy. Yeah. Is she from New York? She's from Connecticut. She's also from a family that did missions work. And her father was an ordained pastor in the Church of the Brethren, but didn't end up pursuing that. And you guys, how many kids do you have now? We have seven. And I met my wife, Kathy. I walked into the very first Bible study that I ever went to of my own volition that was being held for Redeemer Presbyterian Church three months after I moved to New York. And I walked in and I looked at my wife, Kathy, and I immediately said to God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Okay. And really, the problem was, Bill, is I had been out of the church and very much in the world from the age of 14 to 27. And my wife went to a youth camp when she was 13 and got baptized and didn't ever stray from the faith. So it was very much the prodigal son. And Catherine's name is Catherine, means pure one. Hmm. So it was really the marriage of the pure one and the unpure one. Yeah. Okay. And now... (laughs) I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, so how did you end up getting back in Colorado? We will stop there for now and plan to continue our discussion with William Gilmore next time, where we will learn about William's experience in two evangelical seminaries and how it was that he came to understand that the scriptures actually proclaim one God, the Father, and the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and that the Lord Jesus Christ did not pre-exist as a divine being. And he'll tell us a little bit more about his family and current situation. This is Bill Schlegel for the One God Report podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help others to find us and share the podcast on social media. For constructive discussion, you are welcome to join the One God Report Facebook group. Yishma'u anavim ve'yismachu. The humble will hear and rejoice.